Want to turn your organization's data into a strategic asset? Pragmatic Institute offers training to data and business teams with a practical hands-on approach. Discover how Pragmatic can help you build a culture of data-driven decision-making at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson, and today I am sitting down with John Schwabish, founder of the data visualization and presentation skills firm, PolicyViz, and a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. John is a leader in the data visualization field and advocate for clarity and accessibility in research. He has written three books on more effective ways to communicate data and has just released a new book, Data Visualization in Excel, this year. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. Good to chat with you. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dig into some of your experience and some of your insights, but uh, maybe just before we get into any of that, you can say a little bit more about uh, the work that you're doing now and kind of your trajectory, what got you there. Sure. Yeah. So... As you mentioned, I run PolicyViz, which is uh, the smallest kind of consulting firm you can run because it's just me. Uh, mm -hmm. But I also work at the Urban Institute, which is a nonprofit research institution based in D.C. Uh, I'm trained as a, an economist, so I have a Ph.D. in economics. So I spend half of my time at Urban doing research. Uh, most of my research is on issues around nutrition policy and policies that affect people with disabilities. Um, I started my professional career in New York. Uh, I worked for a nonprofit for a few years, and then I moved to D.C. Uh, 2005 now, so it's been a while. Uh, I started, uh, at, uh, I came down to D.C. and worked at the Congressional Budget Office for about a decade. So I worked uh, there. For those, for folks who don't know, uh, CBO is the budget arm of the U.S. Congress. So whenever a member of Congress says, we want to pass this bill, how much is it going to cost? CBO is the one that's responsible for saying it's going to cost a billion dollars or whatever the number is. So I worked there for, for a while and then got interested in this idea of, of doing a better job of communicating data. And uh, it kind of took off from there with, with started doing some writing, a lot of speaking, and, and then uh, got into the teaching world, both uh, from some universities, particularly around here in the D.C. area at Georgetown and American and uh, George Washington University. Um, and then obviously with with private clients and, and lots of other groups. So um, and and yeah, and today I, I spend half of my well, about half and half, but, you know, probably more like 70, 30, 70 percent of my time doing data visualization and presentation skills, training and consulting and helping and talking. And then the other, you know, third to, you know, half of my time doing doing research. Yeah. OK, so I'm wondering if we could dig into that a little bit about what motivated you what issues did you see that you uh, that made you eventually create this firm and, and do this kind of work? I'm curious, like what uh, potential problems or maybe you mm -hmm. saw places where you could help. But what were you seeing and then how did you fill in that gap or how did you how did you come to, to offer these services? Right. So I'd say this kind of started around 2010, 11, 12. Uh, for those of you who remember, this was uh, during the Obama administration. Um, there was a lot of tension in D.C. as there is now. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like we're kind of like repeating history. But uh, what was happening around 2012, 2013 is there was a lot of debate about federal debt. 
And one of the things that was becoming pretty clear to me as an analyst at CBO was that we were putting out a lot of documents and reports and, and testimony in front of Congress about the implications of the different decisions that Congress was making or planning to make in terms of taxes, in terms of spending, in, in terms of revenues and all these different things. And it just seemed to me as an analyst, as an everyday analyst reading the news and being at CBO that our work wasn't being used as much or as frequently as lots of other groups out there in the world, including the research places like Urban, like the Brookings Institution, AEI, Heritage, you know, all these different, you know, groups around the country that work on these different issues. And it sort of felt to me like we could be doing a better job of helping our target audience, which is CBO's audience is members of Congress and their staffs, of course, but that's mm -hmm. who they're focusing on. And I just felt like we weren't doing a very good job. And it kind of, as I, as I thought about it and sort of just examined again from afar, I didn't have any like insider knowledge here, but just seeing that members of Congress are very busy and mm -hmm. we are as human beings, visual creatures and they are visual creatures, right? And so how could we create documents and reports that were more visual and that were easier for people to read and explore. And so I kind of stumbled in this world of the field of data visualization. It never occurred to me that there would be a field of people, of researchers particularly, doing research on how we perceive visual content. Like how do we read a pie chart? Like, hmm. are we better at reading this chart or another chart? You know, th these are the sorts of, of questions that that folks were were wrestling with. And so I started getting diving a little bit deeper. I started reading books. I started thinking about design more. I actually took a, a design class, sort of understand some of these tools. And it just became clear that the more, not just more visual, but just clearer visuals, that they're just clearer and, and easier to read and more direct, we were going to do a better job of communicating that information. And so uh, one of the things that folks should know about the data visualization field, uh, kind of writ large, at least within the social media world, is that it's a very friendly, open area because everybody mm -hmm. comes to the field from a different place. There's mm -hmm. people coming from design, from economics, from astronomy, from physics, from chemistry, I mean, from sports, from all over. And so everybody brings those different perspectives. And it was really easy to just sort of get involved in that field and start to learn and tap into other people's knowledge. And as I started to help create more, and I would argue better visuals, we started to have, we could see an impact. We could see that the work was being used and, and we weren't doing anything. I, I want to make sure, I know we're going to come back to this, Chris, but I just want to make sure that like people know, like you don't have to be a Python programmer or a JavaScript programmer or have an MFA in design or a mm -hmm. PhD in statistics to make graphs that are impactful and that people can actually read. Like it is, it, it, uh, I mean, you just you just mentioned, right? I have a new book on data visualization in Excel. I, I use Excel a lot of the time. Like mm -hmm. Excel is fine. It's not about the tool. It's about how you communicate your, your message or your story or your hypothesis. So I think that's the thing that I took to heart is that we can all, and I as an analyst at CBO can be a better communicator. And that's really what started it. And then just learning from other people. And then as I started to train and do workshops and, you know, get requests for consulting, that's when I decided to start this, start this uh, side consulting gig, um, which I've been doing now since, 
since 2012, 20, 2013. Yeah. So it's been been about 10 years now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so I want to, I mean, there are a few things I want to ask about that, but something that just stood out to me as I was listening to you is that you said, it's not about creating more visuals. It's about creating clearer visuals. Mm -hmm. And that seems sort of obvious, but obviously if it was, people wouldn't need your services, you know, among other things. So I wonder what, what are some examples, or maybe you could take me through maybe some advice that you've given where people were doing more visuals and you got them to do clearer visuals? Like, what does that actually look like in practice? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I'll, I'll tell you one I had with a, a potential client yesterday. So um, they this potential client has, and I say potential because I don't know yet, but had the, mm. had the scoping call yesterday. Um, they have this sort of like <clears throat> uh, cornerstone presentation file that they want to use. And ultimately what they want to do is be able to have this big deck that, you know, a speaker could use for the hour talk, but also be able to pull chunks out of it, maybe for the 10 minute talk yeah. or the 20 minute talk, or even, you know, embed this part because of this particular content. And, you know, maybe in a different deck where they're talking about their company's work and that sort of thing. And, you know, we're talking about the challenges that they're having uh, across a variety of dimensions, you know, making the slides engaging, making the slides clearer with less text. And so we started walking through some of their examples. And, and for me, the first thing that I tell folks is that, the, particularly the titles on slides, they should be short and they should be active. You should tell people what's going on, right? If you are out there giving a presentation or you're making a graph or you're writing a report or, or whatever it may be, and you are making an argument, that argument should be visible in the slide title or in the chart title. And mm -hmm. again, you don't need to be an expert in this, right? Like the story that this is the way I tell this story. So there's a there's a very simple graph I, I use in, in trainees from the Pew Research Center, which is another uh, research uh, group here in D.C. The graph has two lines. It's the labor force participation rate for men and women. OK, and so the line for men uh, starts kind of higher up on the graph and it's going over time for about 50 years and it's just trending downwards. And the line for women starts at the bottom and over the same period is just trending upwards. So you sort of got this, you know, kind of kind of V, uh, sideways V shape. And the title of the graph is the labor force participation rate for men is going down and for women is going up or something to that effect. Yeah. And I, and I could tell you without a doubt, 99% of the economists or analysts that I work with, if I asked them to write a title for that graph, they would say labor force participation rate, comma, men and women, comma, you know, 1953 to yeah, 2023, yeah. right? It's descriptive, but doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to learn from the graph. So, so the first thing I, I tell almost everyone I work with is make more active, concise titles. And I do get pushback on this. Um, I'm sure you've seen this too. Like people say, oh, I can't make an active thing or a title because people think I'm being biased or I'm not being objective or something like mm. that. You know, government analysts are especially you know, keyed into that. But I tell you again, I mean, way more often than not, when you read these reports, the text in the report says in figure one, you can see that this line is going up and this line is going down. And there's still yeah. this like breakdown between what's in the written word and then what's in the graph or in the slide. And so for me, the first almost most obvious place that happens when I work with people is to say, let's tell people in the graph, in the slide, in the exhibit, in the, in the whatever it is, what you want them to learn. What is the main argument? And sometimes you can't do that, right? Sometimes there's more than one thing you want people to pay attention to. Although I would say that's what subtitles are for. 
Um, I would say sometimes that's what multiple graphs are for. Not everything needs to go in a single graph or in a single slide. So, and I, again, I don't think any of this is really rocket science. It's just realizing that there is a better way and that to recognize if you're the analyst, or you're the researcher, you're the scientist, you've been working on this content for two weeks, six weeks, six months, six years. You're showing information to people that maybe they've never seen that information before, or maybe they've never seen it in the way that you are showing it. And so you need to hold their hand a little bit. And that doesn't mean it's dumbing down or it's a lay audience. It's just thinking, it's just putting yourselves and putting yourself in their shoes, right? In their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I wonder, I mean, some of my experience working with people in data science is that they'll you know, if we continue with that example, right, they'll show that sideways V and, but they'll have a number of, you know, caveats that make sense to say, like, we're only counting this form of labor. So keep that in mind. And we're only Mm -hmm. doing this. So keep that in mind. And these are how we've defined things. And there are outliers and all of that makes sense. But I wonder if you have advice when it comes to uh, displaying that or or talking about that, because in, in my experience, and probably in most people's, the data scientist will have a bunch of additional information that is important, but may not necessarily be important for the audience. I wonder how you negotiate that or how you think about that. Yeah. Uh, again, another, another great question. I would just say for, for, for most of us that that detail and subtlety and nuance, like nobody cares, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> data nobody, scientists care. Yeah, I mean, nobody cares about the structure of your error term and your regression. Like, hmm. you know, a lot of that comes with trust between you or your organization and the audience, right? So if 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 my reader, my audience trusts me or trusts my my organization, then if I'm putting that graph on Twitter or on a blog, I don't need to have all those data or all those details, right? Mm-hmm. Now there's always going to be something in the background. There's always a, rep- a longer report, right? That graph on the mm-hmm. on the blog you know, there's a link all the way back to that long PDF report, and that's going to have all the detail. And so I, again, just think like, what is or what are the most important pieces of information? Like what is going to help? So maybe you do need to say for this chart, we use this particular inflation rate, right? Adjuster. We didn't use this Mm -hmm. one. We use the city average because of X, Y, and Z. So it's not to say there should be no detail, but it's just to pick out what are the most important details because they're footnotes for a reason, right? Like not everybody reads those footnotes. Not everybody needs those footnotes. So what are the most important pieces of information? What is the core of the idea of the message you want to convey mm-hmm. with whatever your visual content is and focus on that? And then think about how you might get someone from the tweet to the blog post to the brief to the full paper, right? Like things, they don't have to exist on their own. And for that interested reader who wants to make sure that you did use this type of inflation adjustment or you did do this sort of standard error clustering, right? They can go back to the full paper and they can and they can get that. But on Twitter, it's a single image, it's a single bar chart. Yeah, Maybe yeah. that's not absolutely necessary to include there. Because it's just distracting from what you want to say, which is, hey, this bar is bigger than this other bar, or this line is going up and this line is going down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder, have you noticed in the time that you've been doing this and working in this area, any changes 
beyond ob- the obvious sort of technologies that exist or or software that may exist. Um, but when you're designing, if you were designing something for people 10 years ago versus today, is there a difference in sort of audience expectation and nuance or in the ways that people expect to see information? Yeah, I think the big change has been, in particular for data visualization, I think the big change has been our use of interactive graphics. Mm-hmm. So I would say about 10, maybe 12 years ago, um, most stuff, and this is this is anecdotal. I don't really have data based on this. It's just experience. So I'm sure someone's going to yeah, be yeah. like, well, where are the numbers behind what he's about to talk about? I don't have them. <laughs> just my experience, just looking at this stuff all the time. But I'd say 10, 12 years ago, most graphs, right, in your major news media organizations were static graphs. So it's a static bar chart. Then we started to see tools like JavaScript, particularly the D3 uh, package was released. We started to see our shiny start to grow. We started to see Jupyter Notebooks start to come out. So we started to see all of these tools and platforms and technologies that made it easier for people to build interactive graphics. And so you saw this huge spike in interactive graphics. Now, the question, of course, is do intergra- interactive graphics do anything? Well, I would say at this time, you know, this is around maybe 10 years ago, we're now in this world where every single bar chart and every single line chart you could click on, you could hover, you could get these tooltips. And I think what happened was we learned fairly quickly that people don't do that. <laughs> like they don't click on the bars to see the number pop up because A, people don't have time to do that. They're not that interested. They just want to know that this bar on the left is way taller than that bar down there on the right. And secondly, we just saw the huge growth in people using their phones for Mm. interacting with content. I know about you, uh, Chris, but like, I'm not exploring a dashboard like on my phone. (laughs) Like I'm not filtering and clicking and, you know, doing all that. I'm I'm swiping and I'm scrolling. That's all I'm doing. And so I think what happened was we realized that interactivity wasn't really helping our readers. It was harder to create. It took more time and thus more money. And so then I'd say about five, six years ago, we started to see this real big pullback from that. And now I think what you see Hmm. is interactive visualizations on the web are for those projects where the interactivity really helps the user and it encourages the user to explore or to filter or to do something kind of spectacular as opposed to just, you know, see the number for all the points along that line chart. Because what are you going to do with that, with that uh, you know, that possibility, you're going to write down all those numbers. Like, no, that you're not going to do that. So I, that for me, I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen is a sort of evolution towards and then away from interactivity. Um, and now I think there's just a, a recognition that not everything needs to be interactive. And when we make things interactive, we should be purposeful and we should be strategic and be thoughtful about it because we want people to do something important with through that interactivity, as opposed to just saying, hey, yeah, you can click on this bar chart and, you know, you can do something, but that something isn't really meaningful. So I think that for me, that's the biggest thing. And of course, the toolkits that people have used has grown dramatically, both on the data side and the visualization side and the design side. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, that's the biggest kind of overarching change that I've seen over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, I hadn't necessarily thought of it like that. But now that you say it, I can definitely see in my own experience, I've I remember seeing things that you could click on more. Now I seem to see things that you can scroll through and that Mm -hmm. may go from say one graph to another, but it has some kind of more for it. It shows how they're connected. And so I think there's more of an emphasis on 
story or narrative. I wonder if you have any advice or thoughts about that. So going going from one graph or chart to the next, are there changes in that respect that make things easier to understand or more accessible? Um, yeah. So instead of making one chart that's interactive, going from one or to another to create a sort of narrative, how have you seen that evolve? Yeah. So we had kind of along the same time <laughs> frame I just described, we had this evolution of what we were, the field is kind of called like scrolly telling. So it was like storytelling mm-hmm. plus scrolling, right? We sort of saw this big evolution and we ha- we still see that. I think there's been a bit of a pullback on that where people again, are a little bit more thoughtful about like not everything mm-hmm. needs to be a scroll, big scrolly thing where this graph morphs or animates into this other graph and then goes to this other graph. Whereas now I think you see more where you do scroll, but it's like, here's graph one, here's graph two, here's graph three. And I think now it's a little bit more conscious and strategic about how people do what you just described, which is Let's tell a story and let's make sure people can follow the dot in this scatter plot to the aggregation in this next bar chart. We want to be, we want to let people mm. follow that as opposed to here's a scatter plot and now here's a summary bar chart where, you know, making that animation is, is takes time and, and costs money to do well. And so I think there's just more of an acknowledgement that we should reserve the time and the effort for the projects and the data and the stories that are going to have a bigger impact that are going to mean more to people than, you know, here's yet another story on this month's unemployment rate, right? Mm-hmm. We don't need to necessarily have all this fancy animation because people just want to know, is he, do we, did we add more jobs this month? Is the unemployment rate down this month? Yeah. You know, how did it vary across the country? There's like, you know, a half a dozen things. You just want to know the animation, the the morphing, the movement, the interactivity doesn't matter as much when you just want to know like a half a dozen facts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You're also, I know, interested in accessibility. And I wonder if you could mm-hmm. say a little bit about that and how that works in relation to what we just talked about or just more generally with data viz. How should people think about accessibility in different ways and what has changed over time with accessibility? Yeah. Uh, great, important question. Yeah, I do have... Um, uh, a report that I put out with some colleagues at Urban uh, in December on this. I mean, it's a challenge, I think, for a number of reasons. Mostly, you know, the the tools uh, haven't been particularly helpful. Um, people obviously not recognizing that there's a need to think about people who have different types of, of disabilities and impairments. Uh, I think there's also an overemphasis on uh, color vision deficiencies, commonly you know known as color blindness. Mm-hmm. I think everybody gets up in arms about reds and greens, but there are lots of other impairments. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, people who can't use a mouse, for example, to to work their way through a website. Um, you know, uh, I would also say like, not all disabilities are permanent disabilities. You know, if I I break my arm uh, this afternoon, you know, I'm not going to be able to use my mouse in the same way, right? Now that's temporary, but for that for the few months where I have a broken arm, I'm going to have to figure out a different solution. Um, mm-hmm. I would also say like broadband access is an accessibility issue, right? We were just talking about animation and, and data. You have a big website that ha- needs a lot of bandwidth. If you live in a rural part of, of the United States, and of course, many other places around the world, but if you live in a rural part of the United States, you might not be able to use that website because you're working on a mobile phone where you don't have good internet access. So having said all that, the way that I think about 
making visualizations or making any kind of visual product or any product online accessible is to try to create a product or a platform that gives the same experience to people who have disabilities and for those who do not have disabilities. So the issue is, for example, you don't necessarily need to describe in excruciating detail for someone who's using a screen reader, uh, which let me just pause there real quick. So for folks who don't know, um, if you are blind or have another vision impairment where you can't read, say, a website, you can use a tool called a screen reader. There's lots of them out there and and anyone can test them Mm -hmm. um, and use them. And the screen reader literally reads the text on the website uh, or, or on your computer. And so what we might do to make visual content more accessible is to add alternative text to our uh, to our images or our graphs on that website. So if anyone listening has used PowerPoint before and you drop an image into PowerPoint now, it prompts you to add alternative text or alt text. And so what that does is when the screen reader gets to the image, it actually reads that alternative text to the user. And when you think about writing that alternative text, you don't necessarily, for every graph, need to say, describe each piece of the graph. You know, oh, there's a, a vertical axis that starts at zero, and then there's a 10% tick mark and a 20% yeah, yeah. and a third, right? You don't need to say all of that. The idea, the core kind of philosophy is, let's give the experience, let's make the experience the same for sighted users versus non-sighted users. So instead, I might say, this is a bar chart showing the unemployment rate for five different groups, describe what those five different, you know, name those five different groups and the numbers range from 10% to 50% or, you know, whatever it is. So accessibility is really important, obviously. Um, and I think it is getting easier and easier in many of the tools that are out there. There's a great tool that I would recommend called Chartability, uh, which will enable you to sort of go through a checklist, uh, mm-hmm. as it were, to test your visualization, uh, specifically visualizations for, uh, for accessibility. Um, but it is a challenge and it is worth considering because about a quarter of, of the world's population has some form of a disability. And there's a lot of people uh, that could potentially be using your content and reading your material um, that we need to be thinking about. And so, and there's a lot of considerations here. And I think there's growth and evolution going on in this space particularly. Um, but it is something that we can all, I think, be better at. And, and I'll say one last thing here go back to the question you asked earlier um, where I was talking about these active titles, these good, you know, titles, that's a great way to do your alternative text, right? Like if you've written a really good title for your chart, you pretty much have your alt text. You're pretty much done because then you could say bar chart showing blah, where that blah is your title and you're pretty close to being done with the alt text. So, Hmm. you know, I'm trying to, uh, you know, it's not about, doing extra work. It's about giving that same experience. And it's about thinking, how can I make my content clear for everybody who is going to be using it? Unlock the full potential of your organization's data with business-driven data analysis. In this Pragmatic Institute course, you'll learn how to communicate better with stakeholders, provide concrete results based on the data available, and support business strategy. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking like when you are consulting or when you're talking to a group and especially within an organization that may be more um, sort of conservative or, or risk averse and so doesn't necessarily want to like may think that just doing the default chart is fine. Like, why are we bothering with all this extra visualization 
Um, I wonder, yeah, what are some of the things that you would say or the ways that you would walk people through it? Because I think you and I, and probably a lot of our listeners are bought into this, that uh, you want to work as hard as you can to make visualizations Mm -hmm. accurate, accessible, engaging, but there are a lot of people still who are, who are not necessarily bought into that. And I think there's a tension there sometimes in saying, this is why we should spend an extra week where we could be doing something else right. focused on these visualizations. So what are some of the, the things that you would say to, in those cases? Yeah, I think for me, the best way to do that is to just demonstrate. So you demonstrate that there is a better way. You know, you show someone, yeah, this is the weekly report that we submit to the manager every week, right? And it's 12 pages of tables, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that each manager goes to their page for their group and they look at the one number that they want to see. But they're missing potentially the important number on page six because that's their group is on page eight, but they're missing that number on page six. So now we don't need to go out and build special dashboards and use JavaScript and build all these fancy things. Maybe we just need... Uh, to make that table add a little more color to it, add some flags that highlight the outliers or turn it into a bar chart or something like that. And so the way that I always work with groups that have this risk averse, or I'm not sure, well, I guess it's risk averse is a way to think about it. I think it's, I think a lot of it is cultural change is Mm -hmm. how do you change an organization that's sort of like, we've always done this eight page report every week for the last 15 years. That's how we do it. So what do you do? So, so my approach has always been, don't go from zero to 60. Don't start, tear that report down and make it a, an interactive dashboard that now people have to log in. Start slowly. Instead of having eight pages of black and white tables, add some color. Maybe you add some graphs within that report and you start to demonstrate that there is a better way. And again, you don't need to go to these graphs that you know your manager or your colleagues have never seen before, um, even though they might be better. Right. But you might just have to get there. Right. Because you do have to sort of change this culture of, like you just said, this is the way we do it. This is the way we've always done it. And this is what we're used to. And we're not ready to make that change. So I like to sort of take it in in increments and incremental steps Mm -hmm. and just demonstrate to folks that, hey, if we tried this other way, we can do better. And then you see them side by side and say, oh, yeah, this 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 table that just highlights the five cells that are the highest values in a blue color, right? Like that's all it has to be. I see those five cells right away and those five other cells in red that are the bad things. Now I look at this eight pages and I'm, I'm, I'm prompted. Yeah. I'm primed to see those things. That's all you really need to do. It doesn't, again, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's not rocket science. It's just thinking about how can we make this task easier and how can we make it clear for people to pull out the stories or the conclusions or the observations that we really kind of want them to make. Yeah. I wonder, do you see it or do you see a place for making an aesthetic argument? And what I mean by that is I think sometimes the people that definitely, you know, want to continue doing things as it's always been done uh, are very much into the function. And so thinking, I want to know the number. Does this tell me the number? Yes. And uh, I think they would, some of the, some of these people would see any aesthetics or any changes meant to make it look more visually appealing to be just fluff or extra. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there is an argument for that, or do you tend to focus on the function of it? Well, I think the design is, or at least can be the function, right? So let's just take the table example we were just talking about. So if I take that table and I add 
an icon to the top right of every page. Like I would, I would agree with you that that's like fluff. That's not like necessarily helping just because I threw an icon on it or I didn't use Arial fonts and I use some other font, you know, maybe that's not particularly useful. But if I highlighted those cells in different colors, that might be useful. And again, here's where the kind of core design issue comes up, right? Like, am I going to use a fluorescent green to highlight those? Or am I going to use like our branded color blue, right? Like, I mean, those are the sorts of things because I am no designer, right? So I don't pretend to be a designer. Um, I'm sure designers could do amazing stuff with the things that I've produced. But I just think about my target audience. I mean, when I think about making, for example, go back to slides. When I make a slide deck for an academic economics conference, like I'm sure a designer could do amazing things with my slides. But like when I'm standing in front of 20 or 30 or 50 economists, like what I do is perfectly fine, right? Like I don't need to like over-design the thing because I'm thinking about that that particular audience. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is, I think there's design to engage. I think there's design to make things pop. Um, and sometimes engagement is a goal, but I think oftentimes, particularly when we're thinking about data and data visualization, design is more functional, or at least it should be more functional mm-hmm. as opposed to, let's just, you know, add some, you know, ornaments right around this to sort of like make it look cool. Like, you know, we used to throw a clip art on everything back in, back in the day, <laughs> right? Like we don't need to do that. And so I do see that a lot. Um, the new clip art are those like CGI guys with like the no face, you know, and they're shaking hands all the time. Like I see those <laughs> pop up on slides. Like why, why is this weird red little CGI guy like on the slide? It's totally, it's <laughs> just, it's not useful. It doesn't help. So how can we create design uh, aspects to our slide or a graph or whatever that actually help people get to the information? So that, that's where I, I tend to focus my, my attention. Yeah, I wonder, do you have any examples of, of changes that you've seen either, you know, with your own experience or, or elsewhere where a change in a graph or a change in a slide or presentation has led to significant change in terms of either how it's used or interpreted? Yeah, this this question of impact is such a hard one, right? Because it's like, I created a graph. Did it sway someone's thinking? Did it make a change? And, and, you know, and and can you isolate that effect, right? Oh, Mm -hmm. they saw this graph, but they didn't see anything else. And did that change their mind? Or is it because this graph was in this longer report within this news cycle that, you know, made an impact. I mean, there are lots of great examples out there, I think, of graphs that I would say sort of anecdotally have had an impact, at least on people's thinking and inside and outside the field. Um, There's a great piece from a um, a DataViz shop in Portland um, called Periscopic. Uh, This is after the, I believe, after the Sandy Hook school shooting years ago. Um, they created a, a a data visualization that I think had a lot of impact just on people's perspectives around gun violence. Um, there's there are projects like that that I think have an impact on people's thinking. Um, I can tell you when I was at CBO, just seeing some of the graphs being used in congressional hearings, like that that is what we're trying to do. Now I am no way fooling myself that an eight and a half by eleven infographic you know, inch infographic is saying is, is going to, you know, force Congress to make different decisions about spending and taxes. 
Mm. But you are providing information to people who can use it. So it's a great question. I don't think like I have a rule or guidelines for even like how you measure impact. And I think that's a sort of like, mm-hmm. that might be like the, the thing that we're all searching for. Um, but it's certainly a, a question and it's something that we're striving for, but, but I, I, yeah, so I don't have a great answer to that, but, but I would say in terms of use, that's where I'm striving, right? Because if I can get someone to hold up that infographic in a congressional hearing, or it gets, you know, from my thing, and a version shows up in the Washington Post or the New York Times. You know, I think for me, that's as kind of maybe as close as I can get to measuring impact because I see mm-hmm. it just going further and wider. And I think we've all seen these things that, you know, sprout up on Reddit and they sort of take off and you see these graphs and some are, you know, some are because we're making fun of them and some because they actually tell us something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that maybe how we how we have to measure impact until we can figure out a better way. Yeah, well, and that's a good that's a good starting point at least is how many people are viewing it, which usually even in an organization, right? You can see how many people have looked at your dashboard or yep. whatever you're creating. So, yeah, I think that alone has a can can demonstrate a significant impact. But now that you bring up congressional presentations and things, <laughs> I wonder I, I wanted to ask you about ethics. Um, yeah, obviously, I think nobody would say or encourage unethical presentations, but what are you thinking of or what were, what are some of the things that you would ask data viz people to think about when it comes to eth- ethics and, uh, and presenting data? Yeah. I mean, it's so important, especially now in sort of our era, of, you know, yeah. mist and disinformation. Yeah. I mean, there are a few things that for me, you know, that hair on the back of my neck stands up when I see certain things. So there yeah. are, there are certain things that I look for. So, you know, for me, the number one chart where I find people mislead or misinform, and, and sometimes it's not on purpose, right? Sometimes they're not doing it maliciously. It's just, you know, it's just not done well, is on basically any dual axis chart, right? And what I mean by that is I've got two lines on a chart and one line corresponds to this axis on the left and the other line corresponds to this axis on the right. And, and that to me, generally because you can scale those two axes differently you know the one Mm -hmm. on the left goes from zero to 100 and the one on the right goes from 40 to 42 Um, you can make things look different you can make the patterns look different just by doing those scaling and so that for me is the first most egregious potentially egregious graph um chart bar charts that don't start at zero is another great example probably the only rule that like most data viz folks agree on is like your bar charts should start at zero because kind of, and you can just test this, you know, you're on your computer right now, maybe listening to this podcast, like create a chart, you know, put in a bar that's 25 another bar that's 50 and start your chart at zero. And you'll see the one looks twice as big as the other. Now yeah. change where that zero axis line starts. Maybe it starts at 24, right? Instead of zero. And you're going to see those bars are just going to look totally different. There's overemphasize the difference. Yeah. And so I guess the common thread between those and, and many others that we, you know, we won't, we don't need to go through is arbitrary decisions that the creator is making. Those are the things that make me stop. So, you know, you've started your vertical axis for your bar chart at 24 rather than zero. Okay. That's an arbitrary decision. I mean, zero is obviously arbitrary, but like there's a logic behind it. It's zero, yeah. right? 24 is an arbitrary decision. You've put these two lines on these two axes. They are different ranges, different starting and ending points. That's an arbitrary decision. Why did you do that? So for me, anytime someone's made that kind of arbitrary decision, 
is a place where I just pause and I just take a little bit of a deeper look and say, uh, what, why are they making this decision? Like, what is the, mm-hmm. the adjustment here? So um, it, it is challenging. And, and I guess the other thing I would say, and there's a great book on this, if folks want to uh, read up more. Uh, by Alberto Cairo, who's a mm-hmm. professor of journalism. Podcast, oh, yeah. great. You've, you've had him. So like his book, How Charts Lie, is a great primer on this. Um, and, and one of the messages in Alberto's book is just pause and just take a moment. And you don't need to share everything the second you see it, right? Like take a pause, take a beat. And, you know, did you actually read the thing? Or are you just sharing it because you want to like get it out there? Yeah. And you know, once you read it, you believe it and then you buy into it, then, then go and share it. But I think that's a really good sort of rule of thumb is just take a beat. Um, and for me, it's these arbitrary decisions that people are making where I hesitate to share because, you know, sometimes it is, it is often, I would say, well, I don't know about often, but sometimes it is misleading. Um, and yeah, again, I might not know the, the motivation of the creator, whether it's malicious or not, but those are the things that I sort of look for. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I, it actually reminds me of something you said earlier about the advice of saying what it is that the chart is demonstrating can be very mm-hmm. good for a title. But I think we can also see that as being very biased if you start to say something like before we said, um, you know, women are women are more prominent in the job market or in, uh, in the economy or whatever we're looking at mm-hmm. than they used to be 50 years ago. That seems like a good reading, like that that makes sense, but you could see ways to uh, make it seem like um, uh, much more biased or unethical, oh, sure. like women are taking over the economy or something like that. Right. How do you look for, how do you think about making it a clear message so that you're not just simply saying economy chart number one, male, female, or something mm-hmm. like that, like you mentioned, but also not going overboard or not adding additional information that, yeah, that isn't appropriate or isn't necessarily ethical. How do you see that? Cause I can see how people would hesitate to do any kind of judgment, quote unquote, because they're worried about looking biased, like you said. Right. I mean, so, so I'll, I'll say two things on that. So one is you as the creator of the chart or the slide, you are making an argument. So make your argument in the chart, but to your broader point, I mean, I get, my daughter is 16. She's in high school. She's on the debate team and, you know, there'll be afternoons when she's at debate practice and she'll be texting me and she'll say, is this a reputable website? Is this a reputable website? Right. Like, but, but that's a, like a part of it, right? Like they know that Wikipedia kids know Wikipedia is, you know, you kind of take it with a grain of salt. Right. Um, And you have to be very careful unless you're going to dig through all the references. And so I think trust in organizations and agencies is a big part of it. So if you are putting out a graph and you work for, let's just pick a random news website. Let's say Breitbart, for example. Mm-hmm. Breitbart has a particular perspective on things. Anyone looking at a Breitbart graph should immediately <laughs> take a pause and consider the source, right? And mm-hmm. consider the perspectives and the potential biases of those sources, right? And you know, I could say the same thing for organiz- media organizations on the left, right? I'm just yeah, yeah, you know, right. So uh, I think building trust with your with your audience is the way that you can start to expand. Maybe expand. I'm not sure expand is the right word, but expand. I'll use that. Expand how you describe and how you uh, tell people your argument in your graphs, because now you come to this graph from the blah blah blah. You know, from from the you know. Chris or the Chris Richardson organizations like, oh, okay. So I know who Chris is. I trust his stuff. 
And I don't need to hesitate every time I see something come out of him, out of his group, as opposed to this other person over here, every time they put something out, it turns out to be debunked. You know, I, I need to, I need to take that more skeptically and maybe not even use it at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, part of that, again, we get back to cultural change within and outside an organization and to um, thinking about how you can build that relationship with your, with your target audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there, are there ways that you've seen people uh, build arguments that, that either are or aren't effective when they're showing charts? Like I wonder, uh, we've talked about the title, we've talked mm-hmm. about uh, some of the choices and, you know, avoiding arbitrary choices, making clear what you're looking at. But I wonder if there's any other elements that we haven't talked about when people are either creating charts or presenting them to others that could make it make them more effective. Or maybe that they have to watch out for because they might run down a, a wrong path. Right. So we have kind of so far talked about the text outside the graph, right? Your title, your source notes, you know, all the details. Um, there's also the text that you can put inside the graph, right? So you have labels and you have layers of annotation. And I just like to think about the text that you put inside your graph in sort of three ways or three different classes. They're your kind of standard labels. So let's 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 give an example for folks to think about here. Um, let's take a scatter plot. We'll do something real simple. We won't even name the variables. So you've got a scatter plot. There's 50 dots, one for each state, right? Okay, so now we've got our 50 dots. Um, and most people, I think, listening to this podcast can picture that scatter plot. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure people wear it. Not everybody can do that, right? Not everybody can picture a scatter plot. Not everybody knows what a scatter plot is. It's not like human beings are born with mm. the gene that's like the scatter plot gene, right? Like not everybody knows that. But I'm, I'm guessing for most people in this uh, listening here, they can picture that scatter plot. Okay, so three layers of annotation. One is we label some maybe all of those dots with the name of the state. Probably not all because it's like too much text. But you yeah. you know, you label the one, the states that's at the far top right and you know, the one that's at the far top left, you label those outliers. Okay, so that's what I would kind of call uh, a label. Now we have two layers of annotation. Maybe we say next to that bubble up there in the top right, we say this bubble is Virginia because the variable on the X is high and the variable on the X on the Y axis is is big. And this, and you know, we label the, the state for the bubble for New York. And we say, you know, New York's over here because of A, B, and C that describes what's going on. That's a content annotation. Then I would say there's one more layer of annotation, which is maybe we help people who, who cannot picture that scatter plot. We help them understand how to read the graph. So let's say along our, our horizontal axis, we have, we've been talking about unemployment rates. So let's just do that. We see the unemployment rate right in that middle there, that horizontal axis. And to the left of that, we put a little arrow pointing to the left and we say lower unemployment rate. And then on the other side, we have a little arrow pointing to the right. And we say higher unemployment rate. Hmm. And maybe we add a best fit line right in the middle there. And we, we label that and we say, you know, bubbles above this line are blah, blah, blah. And bubbles below this line are blah, blah, blah. And that annotation layer helps people understand how to read the graph right? As opposed to like what the content is. So for me, what I think about is, you know, do I need that annotation layer, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm writing in a blog or on Twitter, up usually include that layer of annotation. But if I'm writing for an, you know, an academic economics journal, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I can just assume that that audience doesn't need it. And then do I need to add the content layer? And then do I need to add the the label layer? And so I, I I think the big thing that is kind of maybe the, the thread that runs through this conversation 
is how important I think text is in data mm-hmm. visualization. We call it data visualization. It's a visual content, but we know we have evidence from research uh, that people read titles. We suspect people read text. And so if they are reading text, that is part of it. And that is part of the messaging. And I hear, I'm sure you've heard this all the time too, Chris, like, oh, anybody should be able to, you know, a good graph means that you can look at it and you don't yeah. even have to read it. You like it, right? It's like you get it right away. It's like, well, okay, here's a bar chart. I'm not going to give you any text. Tell me what the graph is about. Like yeah. now it's just rectangles. <laughs> That's literally all it is. It's just bubbles in a scatter plot. Like the text is there for a reason. And I think we need to, I think everybody uh, needs to think carefully about how the visual, right? That bar, that bubble, or that line, and the text work together to kind of make that point or tell that story. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's funny because, yeah, people have moved to data viz because they want to go beyond writing a report that's all text. But then you do have to think about text, absolutely. Yeah. And you make, yeah, you make a good point of how that can go better or worse in, in a lot of these cases. Um, but John, you've given a lot of good advice. And I want to—I always like to wrap up by asking you to suggest something that listeners could do um, to see a, see a greater impact. And so some of our listeners may be creating these charts themselves. Other mm-hmm. listeners may be asking for charts or asking for information from their data analysts. Uh, but for anyone listening to the conversation... I wonder if you could provide maybe two things that people could either try out or start doing that would have an impact when it comes to data viz. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and maybe I'll give one for each of those two groups that you just mentioned, right? So there's the creator and then there's the person requesting the created, right? That's the manager yeah. and the analyst. We'll just make it easy. So on the on the manager side, I think you need to be gentle with people, right? You need to recognize that you don't just suddenly start to make great graphs and make totally new graphs and and the problem is solved. It is a Mm -hmm. skill. Creating good, effective visual content is a skill. And so I think managers need to recognize that people want to do better. They want to communicate better, but to be gentle and to provide the feedback, the constructive feedback that will help people better understand what it is you want. To just say, I want this graph to pop doesn't help, right? Like, What do you mean by that, right? Do you mean you want better colors? Do you mean you want better titles? Do you mean you want a better font, a totally different graph type? Like you're tired of 40 bar charts, which all of those are reasonable. All of those yeah, are reasonable yeah. requests, but to but to give some more direction and some and constructive feedback. And then on the analyst side, on the creator side, I would say seek out collaborators. I get a lot of people in my classes and my workshops who think they're going to come in for two hours or four hours or a semester. And at the end, they're going to be an expert programmer and they're going to be a great designer and they're going to know how to code and all this stuff. And it's like, that's just not the world that we live in, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be that expert in all of these skill sets. And so consider collaborating with folks. You know, maybe I'll take a simple example. You have figured out that your graph type would look great as some other chart, but you don't know how to make that chart, right? It's not in your skill set. It's not in the tool that you use. Well, maybe you seek out other folks who can help you make that particular graph, or maybe you need to make something interactive that was static, but you know you don't want to have to learn how to use JavaScript or Tableau or any of these you know other tools. Seek out collaborators. Seek out people who have some experience in design and building color and you know these things. I mean, 
I think that is kind of where the world is, is collaboration. And if you can find those collaborators together, you can sort of be that, that what I call the, the unicorn, right? You can have all mm-hmm. those skill sets together. But as an individual, I just don't think it's a feasible goal to try to be that unicorn. I think it's better as teams. So for me, on the analyst side, the creator side, find collaborators, find teammates, find folks that you can work with and that can help you. And on the manager side, just be kind. I mean, we should all be kind, right? But yeah, just yeah. be kind to the folks that are that are trying and provide them with the with useful feedback rather than let's make it pop. Like tell them what you mean by that and 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 fine-tune it a little bit and then be willing to have that iterative process so that you can end up in a better place. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. And that could, I mean, just it seems simple, but those can lead to some significant changes mm-hmm. in a in a workplace for sure. Uh, John, you've given so much good advice and tips. If people want to follow you or learn more about you and your work, where should they check out? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Chris. They can follow me at policyviz.com is my main website where I blog and host my podcast and write about all things related to data viz and presentation skills. Uh, they can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Jay Schwabish, which is my last name. Uh, or they can find uh, my research stuff at the Urban Institute, um, where we have a couple of blogs. We do have a blog that may be particularly attractive to to listeners of this show, which is our Data at Urban blog, which is hosted on Medium. That is all the behind the scenes, technical and innovative work that we're doing around data and research uh, that folks might find useful. So just find me there and uh, connect with me at any time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it.